The last year has been a period of huge change for everyone. A global pandemic forces us to adapt and change to many new normals and to examine so many parts of our lives that we took for granted before. In the context of this type of change, it's fitting that we start taking a look at the role that we play in managing our own information and how we can empower ourselves in different ways to take an active part in things like our healthcare, our lifestyle and our data. Imagine, for example, how things might be different in the future if we were faced with another situation like the recent pandemic. If we were able to actively take part in providing real-time information on things like symptoms and spread rates and could help the decision makers plan much more accurate and effective strategies with a whole nation of individuals contributing to that information. Dr. Sam and the NewSL team have spent the last year working on an exciting project in this very field. In this episode of the podcast, he explains to me what type of system they've developed, how it was inspired, what it could mean for us as individuals and as a global community, and he announces some exciting news about a worldwide collaboration across many nations, a series of studies and research that will take us that much closer to realising a sense of empowerment when it comes to our health. Enjoy the conversation. This is a podcast about finding answers to human questions, taking control and feeling good. This is the Human Regeneration Project. Dr. Sam Van Eden, welcome back to the Human Regeneration Project. Thank you, Dan. It's lovely to be back again and ready for action indeed. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, and just for context for people, we are continuing, not reviving, but continuing the Human Regeneration mm-hmm. Project as a, a resource for people to be able to follow the journey of yourself and Newcell, all the projects you're involved mm-hmm. in. Um, and up until this point, it's been heavily focused on kind of the therapies and treatments that you mm-hmm. offer in the clinic. Mm. Um, but what we're actually going to discuss today is something very exciting and mm. um, very progressive and very new. So what we have on the agenda for this conversation is going to be backed up by a lot of accompanying media. We will have some videos. We will have some obviously reference literature and a lot, a lot of different things that people can tap into in the coming weeks and months when they understand what this project is all about. Um, but before we go any deeper, how are you, Dr. Sam? I'm very well, thank you. And we just coming out of this uh, COVID pandemic, and I trust and hope that we all be safe and good. And I'm very excited to share with my clients and and the rest of the public some new developments as well to make life easier. Um, about a year ago, when this pandemic hit, um, we were particularly, uh, as health professionals, really, really taken aback by the intensity and particularly the scale, to suddenly move from epidemic into a pandemic um, environment is shocking. These things you you hear about when you're in medical school and you are taught about it and you sit in a class and you go, yeah, yeah, the eyes. that will never happen. Yeah. That will never happen. And here it is. Right. So we need to make it better. And um, a big part of, of the work that has been done by myself and my team over last year um, has been focusing on how can we avoid this? How can we avoid this ever happening again? And how can we, if it happens, how can we do it better? Yeah. So this is just our small contribution to the bigger picture because I'm sure every healthcare worker 
thinks like me, I say, how can we do it? How did this happen? Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of questions. And in the end, we realized we are so completely dependent on government and government advice. And suddenly there's a time when you realize, mm, maybe they don't have the answers. Maybe the contingency plans that was planned and millions spent on it to put those plans in place actually were not worth a lot. Yeah. So it, it is time that we think about these things differently and also embrace what we have around us. 100%, 100%, yeah. yeah. Just just before we launch right into this, to give a bit of a, a bit of backing to what you're saying, this mm. message that you've just delivered there, you've given mm. a little taster, is mm. no different than everything else that we've ever discussed on this podcast in the clinic. It's about empowering people. Exactly. It's not about conspiracy theory and government and all this kind of stuff. It's about mm. making sure that if, if and when something happens, mm. whether that's a global pandemic or an individual health crisis, that mm. the person and the people and we, the community, have power and influence and control and decision-making abilities because realistically that's what's going to make the difference in the long term as again whether it's a pandemic or whether it's your own health mm. if you have more information more control more decision-making power and we don't rely on systems that generally are very macro mm. and are not particularly micro we don't have to rely on those systems too much the outcome was probably going to be better. So just, uh, just to put context on what you said there, yeah. um, in case anybody's thinking, oh, what, what's the problem yeah. with government? What's the problem with organisations? Yeah. Nothing really, but no. it's about being a little bit more granular than that. Well, the reality, if we look at the helicopter view about exactly what you mentioned there, you know, there's expectation that the government should solve this. Should do everything for us. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, that is where the disappointment comes in, when people and oh. the anger yeah, and yeah. the... Um, the anxiety comes from, is born from when people start to distrust or see, oh, well, this is not going to be great. This guideline changed, that guideline changed. Which one is to it now, you know? So it is time that we look at what we have around us available and how can we move to the micro environment where the person who is part and parcel of that pandemic can look after himself or herself and do it better or differently, right? That is really what this is about. The topic really uh, entails the the, uh, the the whole science of medical informatics. And if there's one thing that was very clear right from the beginning, as a matter of fact, when the pandemic was declared, the WHO, their first release was about the lack of data. Okay. And the fact that we are in the dark and governments have to make best guess decisions, but mainly based on experience of individuals or institutions, and that the lack of data was actually the biggest um, factor in this getting out of hand. Yeah. The fact that we couldn't predict, the fact that we couldn't build algorithms or predict accurately if you make this decision what is the effect going to be in week two three four so this is actually where medical informatics um, is playing a role medical informatics is the is the science of understanding medical information medical related information and this is really what the project is about Okay, okay, perfect. And like we discussed earlier on, the context of this conversation is it's very, very apt given, number one, a global mm -hmm. pandemic, as you've mm -hmm. just described, where information drives all decisions. And 
Mm. And nowadays we're very familiar with information in terms of the uh, the marketing machine and how our information is so mm. valuable and all that kind of stuff. But from a medical perspective, this pandemic has just illustrated to us how important it is that we have a good system for managing and organizing that information and mm. um, because it, it could have made things very very different yeah and um, but also in the the recent kind of issues with healthcare systems and hacks mm. and data breaches mm. and all that kind of stuff this is also extremely relevant and um, so to kind of get into this topic what what exactly is it that we're talking about here when we t- you're talking right. about medical informatics what what this yeah. project that you're working on what is yeah it? yeah good so just a bit of background uh, because i don't think a lot of my Clients and patients would know this um, this um, um, other side of my career. Which which other side, Doctor Sam? I've lost count now at this stage. <laughs> the, the the I suppose the the medical informatics side okay. of it, right? So years ago in the nineties, I was very much instrumental in the design and development of the architecture for uh, what possibly at its time was the first uh, medical e-commerce system. Uh, and we de- I developed the design and the architecture and the functional specifications for a, um, a ordering system. In Africa, where I worked, uh, a lot of the rural doctors like myself are also dispensing. So you have to see the patient and then you write out the treatment that's necessary. The patient walk around to the desk and they are actually issued the medicine right there. There's no pharmacy. Okay. There's no shop, there's no big big uh, shopping center where they would go. They will get it from the doctor. So can you imagine, we were a practice of uh, five doctors uh, in, our commu- uh, in our practice, and you have five doctors prescribing and possibly seeing about 50 to 60 patients each. So that's day. all a day. And that is a huge amount of medicines. Yeah. that is handed over to the patient and explained and how to drink it, et cetera, et cetera. But what do you do with the management side on the back end of it? How do you replace that stock? Yeah. And remember, we were about four hours away from our biggest city. So it's not just getting it from next door if you run out of something. You have to plan stock. You have to have it delivered. It comes by road, by gravel road yeah, yeah. even, you know. So the long and the short is... Um, I designed a system where the stock can be automatically uh, replenished. Now, this sounds stupid today, but believe me, in the 90s, that was like, wow. But anyway, that's where my journey with medical informatics started. So when the pandemic hit last year, I was very fortunate to have um, uh, Walter and Werner around with me. Uh, Walter is an engineer, Werner is a quantitative finance uh, um, uh, specialist and uh, also a software engineer and I had Zelda with me with for the project management vote is a, a doctor and and Ajli was doing the business side of, of it so we had the opportunity to actually come together and we started ground one or ground zero, ground zero yeah. <laughs> um, design of uh, what would be what can be and what is ideal to happen when a pandemic like this hits again. Okay. So we, for three months, actually went into a um, design study and did a huge amount of research to establish what is the current knowledge about pandemics, what is the current knowledge about managing current, and it was very clear very quickly that this knowledge actually existed, but was very little acted upon. 
So to give you an example, already in 2014, the EU brought out directives, which I will touch on later, <clears throat> that clearly encourages uh, countries within the EU to start moving towards blockchain technology and get away from the current centralized and decentralized database structures, etc. They knew this was coming. So they started long ago with this. But that, was there the urge to change? Was there enough pressure to change? No, there wasn't until the pandemic hit. But this, you said an interesting word there. You said they encouraged countries yeah. to move towards. So there's no real like directive. This technology was existing. Yeah. It was, there was electronic ways of managing information more efficiently. Yeah. And they recommended yeah. that countries adopt these technologies. Mm. And many countries didn't because yeah. there wasn't an immediate reason to change the way things, Correct. the status quo. Some countries didn't adopt it and still not, have not adopted. But most countries, including Ireland, has started to move towards that. So in all fairness, in Ireland, we're very lucky that our HSE has created eHealth. Uh, uh, and that is our department within the health system looking after the recreation or the creation of the electronic health record within Ireland. And there are certain processes that they currently work through. And this is something that the public should realize. Medical informatics is so complicated. It is super complicated when it comes to data protection, privacy, okay. rights to certain information, blah, blah, blah. So it will take years to, to do that. And I do believe that Ireland is one of the 12 uh, countries that 2019 actually illustrated that they have achieved the transfer of first electronic health records between systems. So yes, we have a plan in Ireland. The question is, was enough resources put behind it? Was it, uh, it, was it fit for purpose to be ready when the pandemic hits? And that is really what happened here, is that although the knowledge was out there, the principles, the designs were out there from an architectural point of view, but there was no urgency. Now, that has changed. Okay. Right. So what we do see is that you're going to see that governments, etc., would move towards this. So what is really different in here if in, in our project, when we looked at the design, and we did the research, we were in collaboration with a huge amount of universities in Brazil, in Taiwan, in China, Australia, the UK. We went everywhere and we did a proper research and in-depth analysis of what is out there, what is possible from a technology point of view, but also trying to understand how the client will perceive their medical information. What would the client like to have and it was actually a, a fairly easy learning curve because you just have to follow your whatsapps to see what people don't like okay it was very clear very quickly what people don't like but what they would like to have had or what they even suggest to be and the better suggestions and we actually learned a lot from that first phase of the lockdown from what do we need to design so we worked very closely with a, a great uh, um, team of, uh, of, of uh, uh, researchers and professor in Brazil who really um, 
started to, to, to open our minds because they're running it within the academic hospitals. And then finally we sourced and decided on our partnerships to help us to actually developing the blockchain part of it, right? And what we try to, to achieve here is a personal electronic health record. Okay. Now, the personal electronic health record is life such, uh, it is life-changing and can also be life-saving, in my opinion. And if the question is, if people had an electronic health record last year in February, March 2020, when this broke out, would it, the outcome have been different? Would less people have died? Would we have avoided lockdowns? Those are the questions that I can't answer. Um, but this is what the study is about. We need to find out because, in all fairness, a study like this has never been accomplished in the world to our knowledge. And we've been working with many universities right across the globe. And it, in our, uh, to our knowledge, this will actually be a first-of-its-kind study where the real people taking part, having access to an electronic health record, being able to manage it and lock it and unlock it okay. and decide what do they want to share. So imagine um, a private and secure online banking facility that we all enjoy now, where you have the ability and the freedom to access your account whenever you want from anywhere in the world at any time. And you can have it on your PC or you can have it on your mobile phone, right? Imagine you can do exactly that, accessing your medical records. Imagine you can actually upload or warn or make aware if anything changes in your health status. Or imagine even that you can be communicated with from your health authority or your doctor or pharmacy, whatever. So we are talking here about something that is actually radically new in the mindset that has not been done before. And that is for you to manage your health records like you're managing your bank account. Just, just for in case people aren't aware how things, because if, if anybody is actively involved in the healthcare system now has, a, has an ongoing illness and they've had to be in and out, they might be familiar. But anybody who's not really keeping their finger on the pulse, at the moment, the end user, us, the clients, yeah. the patients, aren't necessarily an active a member in our own information. So in Ireland, I know we've moved to more of an e-system, but it's still quite, most countries, it's still very fragmented, where you go to your doctor, the doctor might pass the information on to the scan, the scan might pass it to the hospital, but you're not really involved in that loop except as the client. So it's, you're a little bit, you're you're very removed from the process. And in the context of what just happened, you and your developing health Mm. or symptoms, you're not necessarily touching base regularly enough with Mm. that system for the system to have any real Mm. understanding of what's Mm. going on with the country or with the community or with the group of people. And what you're talking about here is a way for me as the client and the end user, the patient, the individual, Mm. to be playing an active role in how my information is shared, not necessarily just for privacy reasons, but this is obviously a benefit Mm -hmm. you talk about, but I'm now part of a system that is using me, which is the most important point in that system because yeah. I am the information, mm-hmm. but I'm now actively contributing to that system. Exactly. And I'm connecting with my doctor and my pharmacist and my hospital and my scan and all these different mm-hmm. parts. Yeah. And it's a much more kind of yeah. flowing up to date kind of yeah. relationship as yeah. opposed to what we currently deal yeah. with. Would that yeah. be a fair enough assessment? Of Correct. The, um, and um, 
most people would be interested. And if you ask them a question, would you like to have access to your records? Very few people will say no. Yeah. So we know that answer. And there's a huge amount of papers that backed the EU conclusion that we have to move to electronic health records. Okay. But the current design of the systems and what is encouraged in most countries is that the state or the government or the private health company or the private hospital will develop their own blockchain system, electronic health records. The information that is put into there is controlled by the hospital. The patient that visits that institution is just contributing. Yeah. They don't have access to that information. Now, GDPR has changed that a lot in, in the EU because now suddenly you have a right to that access, which changed the ball game and the rules in the game here and has actually opened the possibility for us to actually design and put in place a system where people will actually be able to manage that record. Yeah. Right. Now, most people at the moment that do keep records of their health records, they have photos on mobile phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have emails. They have folders on their computer. It's they everywhere. have filing cabinets. It's just all over the place at the moment. Now imagine you have one place where you can, with blockchain technology security, lock and using your own key to unlock that information when you're on holiday in Mexico or in the Bahamas or in the UK. Yeah. Where, wherever you are, you have access to your f complete medical record. This is the vision. Okay. This is where we're going to. Eventually, not only having access to that information, but to be able to immediately share that on the spot, all right, as needed. Yeah. If you're in an emergency situation in, in Caracas and you suddenly need to attend the emergency room, what is the value? Can you imagine the real value of being able to unlock your emergency information to the treating doctor. That's there. actually a great point because I, I can, even in my own experience, count the amount of times I've been somewhere and to get hands, it, a doctor or someone says, I need to know your history or, and you're like, I'm going to have to call, I'm going to have to call Sam. Yeah. He's going to have to go check his emails. Yeah. And it's, it's, you, you, it's really difficult to access the information. And I think most people probably have had a similar experience. Exactly. And imagine you have three or four children and oh, you need yeah, to be yeah. responsible for that as well. And you've you seen know. 10 different specialists over the last 10 years with 10 different kind of different concerns. Yeah, it e makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Yeah. So the the whole point that was brought this to the to the front is actually people now having to also keep the records of the vaccinations, yes. of the COVID tests. Where the, where the heck do you put that? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. where is it safe to put it, make, take photos? And when you're at airport, you're going to flick through your photos to show your yeah. last COVID test, et cetera, et cetera. So the, we, 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 we designed a year ago a system that should be robust, friendly, based on current knowledge, right? We didn't invent any new knowledge, right? We used current knowledge and we actually went back and look at what was suggested by literally, Dan, you won't believe this, thousands of publications where doctors were writing about electronic health records. Wow. The different designs of them are discussed and it's in the open public, right? And that's why I say very little was acted upon. It's not that we didn't know how to do it, right? But it was also what was lacking 
is perhaps the vision to 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 bring this into a different context. Like I said, at the moment, the state, the institution, the private hospital is controlling the information. What about changing that model and now put it into the hands of the individual that now can contribute or share the information with that same hospital or institution or private hospital? Yeah. There's a change in the design of who is owning this man, uh, the, the data and how it's going to be managed. And this is the system that we created with great collaboration from all over the world and particularly our partners in Taiwan and in Germany. We created what we believe uh, to be a very valuable and significant tool. There certainly might be something similar out there, like for instance, the EU passport that comes out now is a typical example of electronic health record. All right. And it actually shares your information you own it. It's on your record, right? It's a great example of an electronic health record. Yeah. So it's not even a foreign concept anymore. Yeah, the yeah. EU Parliament said, this is what we want and what you would need. And it is a great idea, right? But that information can be easily important into our solution and can be, be part of your medical records. Yeah. And when yeah. you travel, you travel with one, with one phone, with one when access, and you can access it in very different ways as yeah. well, you know. And you mentioned something there, you mentioned blockchain technology, which some people might find confusing because mm -hmm. many, many people's only understanding of blockchain technology at the moment is cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And they hear blockchain and cryptocurrency think it's the same thing. Yeah. Now, from my relatively limited understanding of the world of, of blockchain, it's essentially just another way of creating a network where the contributing members of that network have some level of authority, mm -hmm. control, security. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it works on a currency um, mm. standpoint because you can protect your money and you can have control over value that you create and contribute mm. to, the, to the community um, but in case people are listening and they hear blockchain they think what's blockchain got to do with it blockchain is just a technology mm. that could facilitate something you've just described to me uh, it's, it's the framework that you could use to build a system where I can have control over my own information and everybody can and no one organization has that information everybody has their own piece of that information yeah. which essentially is with cryptocurrencies with currency but with your information mm. it's just another form of value which is yeah. your data would yeah. that be would that be fair to say that's 100 percent right and because most people will associate but um cryptocurrency and bitcoin with the word blockchain yeah. because that is the technology yeah. that's used to build this the exactly. solution right our solution, for instance, is, was built on Ethereum. Okay. So it's Ethereum-based uh, blockchain technology that we implemented in our system, right? And blockchain is really a distributed ledger technology that records online transactions. Now, whether that transaction is financial, medical, a scan, a blood test, it is a transaction. It's a, it's a snapshot, like a photo taken yeah. in time, but cannot be changed or ordered, it is there for life. Yes, right. and it's verified by and the entire system. It is verified by the entire system to be secure and true, All right? So it is regulated through a consensus mechanism and is secured with cryptography, right? So that's exactly yeah. when you open it, the system agrees that this is you, Dan, and it's your information, right? So the blockchain technology enabled our app to give uh, each participant a digital identity. 
And this is controlled by a private key that brings access to digital versions of paper certificates. So you can now actually access your blood result as a paper certificate and you can share that by email or WhatsApp or even just send it through Wi-Fi to your hospital system, which they will need to give you access to. Yeah. Right. So the control is never taken away from the, the client or from the hospital. It is shareable, but the decision to share is now that of the clients. Okay. Right. Now, there might be ethical issues involved, and this is what the study is about. There's yeah. a huge amount of questions that is not answered. That is a difficult question that we not even know who will get answers. But that's why you study these things. You yeah, need to explore yeah. and find out what you what you can uh, get from it, you know. So blockchain um, uh, technology um, has also been used to prevent information from being manipulated by unauthorized parties. So being able to control the security, you would highly unlikely ha can have a hack, for instance. Yes. So far, it is proven to be not hackable. Unhackable, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, right. So hence that the EU is encouraged countries to move away from current systems, which are hackable, yeah. to something more um, secure like blockchain technology. I just want to pick up on one thing you said there because it's very, very important, I feel, in the context of this conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not about taking the control of the information away from the state or the organization. Mm -hmm. It's about a more even sharing and uh, interaction with that information where we play an active role in it as opposed to just, here, you have it and yeah. I, I, maybe I can get it, maybe I can't, maybe I can make a decision, maybe I can't. It's not about let's reclaim everything and burn the city down and anything like that. No. That's an easy stick to beat something like this with. Exactly. And I have to point out to a number of studies that supports uh, the fact that blockchain technology has been applied to resolve the tension yeah. and trust issues between maintaining privacy and addressing public health needs. Yeah. Um, such as, for instance, tracking infected patients uh, like we had with COVID-19. There was immediately an issue. Now, if you use blockchain technology, that already reduces that tension because the Brilliant. patient never feels that they lose control of their information. Okay, yeah. Right, so we see it, and this is not my impression, this is supported by a huge amount of, of, of publications that particularly look at the aspect between the state and the private persons and the ownership and use of that knowledge okay. and data. Yeah. And it has been all confirmed that the patient would actually readily uh, accept um, sharing information, important information, but that they would primarily like to keep the control and who and know who it was shared with. Okay, yeah, I like that because it is a very re relevant conversation nowadays and a lot of people are getting uh, very wor worked up and angry. And again, particularly in this marketing context, there's a lot of documentaries and movies out there, but they yeah. have your data, they're sharing your data, they're selling yeah. your data and it creates a, yeah. a mistrust. Whereas mm. this, to me, this seems like not to try and take our information back, but rather get rid of the mistrust. Yeah. Give us a little bit more of an active role in what's going on here. Exactly. So the intention was never to create something to oppose yeah, something. No, no. 
it is to integrate with something that's already there. So the the current and existing models that's in the health system to work that huge amount of work that the government here in Ireland has put into moving to the electronic health record system can only be enhanced yeah. by empowering the people to actually eventually start sharing. Can you imagine the man hours that people will be able to put into their health records yeah. and share that? That's man hours you don't have to pay somebody in HSE to actually do yeah. or go and write out. Absolutely, yeah. So there's a huge opportunity here where we can create massive amounts of information and big data which the government then can use overall to improve public health outcomes. And this really points down to what we try to achieve here. What we designed, we acknowledge and we were told and we fully appreciate that it is a disruptive technology. In other words, it is very different from what is out there at the moment. And it allows the patient to take control and manage their own medical records and information. Um, But the paradigm shift here in the design is from the state to the patient. Now, I trust that the state will support and that individuals and companies and institutions will embrace an opportunity like this. Um, because we know from the publications and from the science behind this um, that once you start embracing blockchain technology and the different electronic uh, technologies that's provided by the fourth industrial revolution, and we only have a chat about that as well, you know, because it's a very important part from what we designed here. We know um, um, that this is going to be a critical part of making things better for the next pandemic. Okay. To make sure that the individual also have access. But most importantly, when the collation of the information starts to be coming a data set, for the government then to make new guidelines or create guidelines based on today's knowledge and data will change the way we manage the pandemic. Yeah. Now, that concept is part of the Dublin study. Uh, which we'll also talk about now, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, so that I mean that's a great that first first few minutes there is a great explanation of why something like this is not just nice. It's yeah. like this could change the way we manage something like a pandemic. It's so relevant now. Yeah. This would have been relevant before the pandemic. Yeah. Let's 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 be honest yeah. about that because it's a great shift. Yeah. Um. But with the pandemic and with the the value that having yeah. up to date regular information and yeah. engagement from the people. Uh, to take that strain off governments and states and bodies to have to make decisions based on poor information. Yeah. It's so yeah. relevant now. Um, yeah. So this, yeah. it, that's a great explanation of it. But let's yeah. let's get to the team. Yeah. So the, the, you and the team and the study, yeah. we know what the goal and the mission is here now. Yeah. What, 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 what do you do? What's the, the structure look like? What are you doing? What does this look so like going forward? What we basically did, we did um, the research first. Yes. Then we created the basic design of the ideal electronic health uh, record system. And then we actually went out there and did a huge amount of research on the different technologies. And again, this is known from a long time ago. And particularly, we were focusing on making use of the uh, technologies provided in the fourth industrial revolution, 
which is a great topic to talk yeah, about. Yeah, you might separately give us a little bit of a history you know, lesson. But on I'll that. give you a bit of a history on that and I'll give you a bit of insight into the fourth electronic uh, industrial revolution itself. Our biggest challenge was how then to integrate these technologies within the uh, 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 industrial revolution and how to make them compatible with the EU directives, with eHealth Ireland, with international standards. We created basically a tiered system of centralized and decentralized database design. And we implemented um, and system that supports health level seven and other communication protocols. So this is a language yeah. that was been, has been used for about nearly 40 years now. It's an international standard where different medical systems talk to each other and different designs, even completely different machines can be able to transfer information. For instance, if you go for a scan uh, in your local scanning radiology department, that image can be sent to your mobile phone. Yeah. Health level seven. Yeah. yeah it yeah. can be sent to your doctor. Health level seven. Yeah. It can be sent to another hospital. Health level seven. So there are actually protocols. We had to institute that. And it had to be in lines with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, HIPAA, as well as GDPR. And believe me, the number is just going on and on. The directive that the EU uh, um, applied in 2014, and it's actually in 2011 they actually started with that, was actually Article 14 of the directive. And it acknowledges the rights in cross-border healthcare. In other words, it acknowledged the right for patients to have access to their own information and to be able to transfer it even across border between different countries. Okay. Right. So the European e-health systems uh, created the European Interoperability Framework, or the EIF, and this facilitates the cross-border transferring of medical data. And the new action plan that was uh, from 2012 until 2020 confirmed the commitment of the EU to remove the existing barriers to fully mature and interoperable e-health system in Europe. So there is no legislation that prohibits this system or makes it um, illegal in any ways. Okay. This was developed purely on the basis of the vision that is also existing in the EU where it's clear in the directive that we should break down the, the, the barriers for people to have access to the information. Yeah. And we should break down the barriers between health systems to communicate and talk to each other. Well, it's interesting. We have You can get in a plane and fly anywhere in the world. Mm. There's no roaming charges on your phone anymore. You have international kind of rates and stuff like that. Um, you, you, you purchase a lot of their goods internationally from different countries now too, but there were serious barriers between mm. medical systems talking to each yeah. other. Yeah. around the world and in uh, Europe specifically. Yeah, yeah. especially. Yeah. But why is it not working in health? Yeah, it's interesting. Why, why is it being avoided in health? Why do we have access to your online banking, but I can't access my medical file? Yeah. It stands to question what we just accepted as the norm. And it took a pandemic for all of us to realize, listen, there must be a different way of doing this, right? And I think 
the fact that we uh, that the EU already has put these things in place is a good sign that we can trust the authorities in that way that they actually had the vision yeah. to enforce this and make it now enforceable on the countries to make sure that people can actually make use of these technologies that is much safer from a security point of view than having an ordinary um, laptop sitting somewhere on somebody's office. So what the whole thing was about this EU directives is the integratability between existing systems and how different countries can integrate the information using this. So what I have to say is that I, uh, for the study and for, for what we created here, we had incredible contributions from uh, universities here in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, um, um, the, uh, the uh, Huazhou University in China. We had fantastic contributions from New South Wales, Sydney University, the Tapei Medical University, the Tapei Changung Memorial Hospital, the Turka University in Finland, uh, universities wow. from Germany. The list goes on and on. So, so everybody wants this. <laughs> everyone wants this and everyone wants to be part of the study because everyone knows this is something that they were waiting for, yeah. you know. And we were just very fortunate to have a team to put it together, do the architecture, and then we can take it out to these professionals. That is the best of breed in the world, in my opinion, at least, you know, from what we could research, to actually put it into a reality. Yeah. All right. So the the company, for instance, providing the, the cybersecurity for us, we don't do that. We don't have to do that. We're just running the application, right? But they are providing also services to Bosch, to Lufthansa, to Swiss Air, to Austrian Air. The list goes on there. You know, so these people are based in their team and they're based in Germany. So this is an active development project now. This is not theoretical at the moment. No. This is this is in the next stage. It's in development. You're working on yeah. all the physical, practical parts and applications of this. Correct, Amazing. yes. So that brings us to the Dublin study. Yeah. So very exciting to, to announce that within the next three, four weeks here in, in mid-July around, we're going to launch a study here in Malahide in Dublin where we will be basically invite uh, between 600 to 800 people. Uh, so it's limited spaces. And they will take part in this academic study. So the people um, uh, would like to also come and be tested. So what we can do, we're going to provide them with a, a range of very interesting COVID-19 tests. Okay. For instance, we want to establish and learn for people who think they had COVID exposure or had it, but were never confirmed. So we're going to run two COVID studies that's antibodies for them, two different studies. And we're also going to do a test for antigen. People who had vaccinations, right? Do you have vac uh, antibodies after your vaccination? Good question. Andrew Marr went on, 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 on BBC yesterday announcing that he picked up um, COVID-19 was very ill at the G7 after reporting that from, from Cornwall, right? But he had two vaccinations done. Yeah. And despite that, got very, very ill, all right? So the question is, do you have antibodies after your vaccine? 
So we're going to do that test, which is a very unique test and actually the first CE test approved in the EU. Uh, we will be able to access that. The company kindly made that available for us for this study. Right. So the whole, whole idea is the person will be able to go on the, uh, uh, the web page. They will be able to sign in. Um, they will be able to book and schedule a time and a date that suits them well. Uh, uh, in the clinic, we will have um, facilities for accommodating people to come in. And they will be in the clinic for about 30 minutes. But four days uh, prior to this, they will actually start uploading their own information. So when you sign up and you have now your own blockchain electronic health record, you have your own key, just remember the password. <laughs> Don't lose right. the key. Don't lose the key. You'll never be able to open that. And nobody else can open it on your behalf. That's the magic of, of, of blockchain, but also the downfall of it. Isn't that yeah. where they say a bunch of Bitcoin is at the moment? It's in... It it's in these wallets that people who've lost the keys or forgotten. Or... Exactly. So make sure that you do keep your, your key because only you can open <laughs> that key, right? So you'll be able to download the app from Play Store or from your Apple uh, store and you'll be able to access the, 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 the program and you will be able to upload your medical history, your surgical history, your blood test. If you have any of that, you'll be able to put up your allergies. You can answer the questions about general health, etc. But then also there's going to be a number of questionnaires that relates purely to the study and to COVID. Did you had it before? When did you have it? Do you think have it? What symptoms did you have when you got it? Right, okay. And then we used the um, uh, University of uh, London's um, protocol on establishing the six different groups of people that have possibly had COVID, you know. So you can select your group from that, you know. All of that collates your electronic health, health record. We're also then going to ask you to do daily recordings for four days. And the basic questions for COVID, do you have high fever, any coughing, loss of smell, etc. And for four days, the people taking part in the study will actually answer the question. They're also going to take a photo of a specific test that we're going to apply, right, and upload that up to into the system. On the fifth day, you're basically going to come into this clinic and you're going to have a selection of three COVID, different COVID tests or vaccinate, post-vaccination tests, right? Your results will be read and you'll be in the clinic for 30 minutes by a professional nurse or a doctor and the results will be uploaded into electronic health record, right? Now, when that is uploaded, that is now part and parcel of your adjudicated health record, right? So now you can go out, fly out and use that information or share it with any authority or airline or whoever you want. Through the app? Through the app. Okay. Through the app. But you have control who you show it to and who you want to forward it to. Right. Just a couple of questions before mm -hmm. you go on on that, Dr. Sam. Um, one thing, obviously, is a question people are going to ask when you mentioned the four days leading up to mm -hmm. the, the testing. Mm -hmm. the, it relies a lot on self testing and exactly. self-reporting and self-adjudication. Ah. Does that affect the robustness of this system then when you have people self, not diagnosing obviously, but self-reporting? Mm. One argument would be, well, that's why we go to the doctor because I mm. can't, well, maybe I can say I'm a bit hot, but I can't tell, do mm. I have an actual mm. active fever? Am I actually, yeah. um, what, how, how, does that, how does that build into the system then when people are self-reporting this information? Well, 
it's non-different from what's happening now. Okay. They will go to the doctor and say, I think I feel a bit hot. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we want to prove, and the question is asked, are people ready to self-assess themselves like in a pandemic? Okay. Are they or not? Right. What we hope to prove is that of all the people that did this and self-reported, but say, for instance, 99% were actually truthful and actually reported correct. Because okay. remember, yeah, you're lying only to yourself yeah. on your own record. Yeah. Nobody, that is your question yeah, okay. that you have to be honest with that. And we do believe that most of the public, it's like using your, your financial system and lying on your, on your bank account and doing transactions yeah. and sending money out of your account. Why would you do that? Yeah. You know, so we believe in, in health, people would be serious enough about this and truthfully answer simple questions. What we really want to show is that the public is actually ready to do self-assessment. And in a pandemic, if you in the future can self-assess and the system is uploaded and you can be pinpointed that you are now developing COVID systems, what if the government or the health sector can then advise you to isolate even before you die? Yes, yeah. yeah based on a proactive system, and this is something that many studies have shown already, it's great to do track and tracing, which is a reactive system. Yeah. It doesn't prevent really for that person to get it in the first place. It just tells you, yeah, it did happen. It happened, yeah. okay, it prevents other people getting it as well. But what if we can have a system that actually can pinpoint already when it starts to happen, yeah. right? And this is what we want to illustrate. Is the public ready for this or not? The study needs to show us how much do they engage, how honest do they are they, and how difficult is it for them to do it, and don't they want to do it at all? Yeah, and I suppose a lot will come down to the design of the questions. They'll be designed in a way that doesn't leave a huge amount of room for error. So you either tell the truth or you don't. You're not going to get exactly. it wrong, I suppose. Exactly, and this is why I involved so many of the universities because yeah. they helped us to develop these questionnaires yeah. that is not biased, that is truthful, that is straight, it is simple to understand. Yeah. But very important also, we can have different questionnaires. If you're, for instance, a diabetic, then you'll, you'll be able to access diabetic questionnaires that will help you to pinpoint things that changes in your health status over five years or 10 years. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that is where we really get into telemedicine, for instance, yeah. where you don't have to go to the hospital anymore to attend, but the hospital will contact you and say, listen, we picked up, you're changing this and this and this. Your dose has changed. You need to incrementally change yeah, or improve, yeah, increase yeah. your dose. That's the ideal where we're moving to. Can you imagine if we can reduce the feed into the hospitals? And even imagine having access to data immediately yeah. and information and advice coming back to you based on the test that you just did yesterday. But it's madness to consider that we have to have this conversation now because you can buy a fridge today from Samsung that'll tell you, uh, Dr. Sam, you're running out of milk. I'm just going to order some new milk for you. Like mm. this, this stuff is not space age future stuff. It's it's real. It's mad that we're, it's medicine is one of the last, well, maybe not the last, but one of the later adopters of this kind yeah. of uh, this technology. For some reason, we fell behind. Yeah. The finances are way ahead of us. Yeah. Banking is way ahead. Transport and flights are way ahead of yeah. medicine, right? Even the fridges. <laughs> Even the fridges, yeah. Ahead of us, you know. So it's time that we wake up. 
yeah. and realize the, the responsibility is not that of the state. Yeah. It's my responsibility. Has, yeah. My health is my responsibility. And that is a change in attitude because I, even in practical practice, see people think, oh, doctor, that's your job. You need to tell me, you know. Actually, it is not. Well, that's something we've talked about a lot before in a medical <laughs> context is, is the doctor will fix me. Yeah, yeah. The doctor yeah, will fix me. Yeah. But if you engage actively in that process, the chances yeah. are your outcome is going yeah. to be so much better yeah, yeah. than just doctor yeah. fix me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And just for a bit of clarity, just around the study itself, because I know you're mentioning mm. COVID and, and COVID testing and all that here. It's not a, it's not a study on COVID. COVID is the current testing ground exactly. for this type of technology it's very relevant it's very current it's 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 a good demonstration but yeah. this as you said can be applied to so much more than just the exactly. pandemic and COVID. Yeah. this is yeah. talking about the bigger picture of the medicine picture, and information yeah. yeah so maybe i must give you the and read i'll have to read this out because it's too yeah. long a sentence for, it, yeah. for the actual study itself so the study is called a prospective evaluation an audit of practice to measure the value of the use of a multi-tiered blockchain architecture electronic health record solution to improve clinical outcomes and containment of a disease and to enhance the formulation of evidence-based public health management strategies and guidelines and reduce mortality rates in the management of a pandemic, including the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic based on the real-time availability of crucial personal health data. That's the title. You should That's get it on a t-shirt yeah, for all the team. <laughs> that makes I'll sense though. It makes sense. I'll have to go on the back of the t-shirt. On the back too. of the t-shirt and the front <laughs> and the inside. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it's a long, what it basically says, if we use something like this, can we illustrate that we can reduce deaths, that we can change outcomes all right, avoid lockdowns, and that we can enable government and the health sector to create better guidelines. Okay. That's, that's the question. Yeah. That's what we really want to establish in the study is to see can this be done and will, make, will it make a difference? Yeah, yeah. Now, what we basically do, the information that's going to be, the patients are going to co get consent to have all their personal data removed. In other words, anonymized. We're going to remove everything that's personal from okay. that. They're going to consent then for the data and how they used it then to be given to these universities and research institutes worldwide. And we will start different sectors looking at the information and see what do we learn from the behavior of the people that took part in the study. Right. Okay. We need to understand how did people interact with this? Why did they interact? What did they achieve? Right. How honest were they? And did they do it at all? Right. So this is the questions that we need to do in the study. So in the study, we have researchers from epidemiology. We have uh, researchers from emergency medicine. We have general medicine. We have respiratory medicine. There are researchers from, from public health and from government. We have even uh, business school involved uh, uh, in, in the study. And they are going to look at the financial and economic impact of something like this on general health, on savings and costs. Yeah. Right. So they're going to look at that same data set 
very differently yeah. than the guy of microbiology. We were very lucky to get a, a, a professor from Finland uh, that's looking from a microbiology point of view. Right. So these are all different aspects that we're going to look at the same data and see what are we concluding here, guys? What is the, the relevance to reduce deaths? How does this affect the outcome of using something like this that we can avoid a lockdown? Okay. And how it can be used? Because in the end, we will use the anonymized data, and I want to be very clear about this. All data will be without your details according to the GDPR and HIPAA rules and everything that applies to that. Right. People will consent to the study. And the data will be used as big data um, and artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms can then be applied to this data and we can start learn what to do better next time. Okay. How can we change this in the future for good? How did people react to daily filling in of the basic information? And what did we learn from the 600 or 800 people that took part in the study? How did they perceive it? You know, so it's nearly like creating a, a movie scene yeah, where people yeah. were put into a pandemic where it is, yeah. right? They might have no symptoms, and that's fine. Even if they just report no symptoms over four days, that's also fine. But the fact that they daily report it shows that people are able and They're willing engaged. to engage with the management of a pandemic. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's. It's. It's becoming very clear to me listening to you speak there that a huge driver of the, the success of something like this, mm. just like with cryptocurrency and all that kind of yeah. stuff, is yeah. the confidence yeah. and the willingness yeah. of the end user, yeah. which is yeah. me and the client, yeah. to yeah. engage with this yeah. with this yeah. system and yeah. the trust they have yeah. in the system. Yeah. Um. So uh, everything you discussed there about international colleges and professors and doctors and multiple boards and organisations mm. in the EU backing this kind of stuff. Yeah obviously lends a lot of trust and a yeah. lot of weight. This yeah. is not just another company setting up something where they're telling you, give us your data and we'll keep it safe. This is this is going to be backed through your research and your studies here and your collaboration with multiple different countries, multiple different organizations yeah. is going to demonstrate to me yeah. as the end user that we're, we're making this with everybody on board. Yeah. It's not Dr. Sam Give me yeah. your data and I'll protect yeah. it for you. Wink, wink. Yeah. This yeah. is everybody's involved. Yeah. We're all doing this together. Yeah. We might have a lot of trust now. and not a, But look, look at cryptocurrency. Yeah. Look at the trend over the last 20 years. Yeah. yeah, Everybody's on board and then somebody freaks out and everybody's off. But inevitably, then everybody's on board again and now we're all more on board than the last. It's, this has gone one direction. Exactly. Uh, and I don't yeah. understand much about cryptocurrency, yeah. but it's clear to see these trends and something like this with so many benefits that you've outlined. Yeah. Exactly, because I just want to make clear... We actually never own the data. That yeah. belongs to the patient and they have it the keys. It belongs to the patient. Right. Yeah. The, we are purely just the librarians yeah, yeah, of yeah. managing it and eventually making it available with the consent of the client. Right. And there are interesting models around that. But the main thing that we want to achieve with the study is to get a better understanding and knowledge about the value of data today. Yes. What is it value today's data? And yes. how can we use today's data to change and create a, a, a guideline that will make a difference tomorrow? This is what was missing and what the health, World Health Organization said from day one. They said two things. The lack of information is driving this pandemic. And two, 
testing, testing, testing. We have to test more people and isolate the correct people, not populations. Yeah. Isolate the correct people. And those, those two points are the single most important philosophy that we built into the solution. Okay. That is mainly focusing on exactly and achieving exactly that within the application itself. Okay. So I ideal outcomes for you as optimistic, Dr. Sam, mm. what what would you like to see in the first stages of this test? What 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 are you expecting to see and what would you like to see as outcomes? What are you hoping to yeah. achieve? Yeah. So what we would like to achieve and the, the basic questions we want to answer from the study is that are people and individuals ready to embrace and manage their own medical records? Okay. Yes or no? Yeah. And if we can do a large enough study, right, um, using uh, a, a solution like that, how does the machine user interface work? How do people interact with their mobile phone or the computer? Or how did they find that relationship? We know now people are happy booking online flights, yeah. full trust, right? Uh, online holiday, right? Banking. But now health, will they have the same attitude? Yeah when they open the health record than they will have when they book a flight, you know. So we also um, need to establish will people use that? Is there interest for this? And how do they feel if they now become the responsible person for sharing the information? I have their report now here, but now I have to send it on to my doctor. Now, my doctor more likely will get it from the hospital anyway yeah. because we're not going to change that, all right? But I have the right now, whenever I go on holiday, to show it to another doctor. Yeah. Right. So it opens a brand new field of telemedicine as well, where a patient can actually now engage with a doctor online and share information on screen, like in a Zoom call. Yeah. Share. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that is a position patients have never been in before. And how do they feel about that? I can't answer that. The study will answer that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We also want to know how people feel about the state not having the full control anymore or their doctor not having control. Yeah. Some people might like it. Some people might just absolutely be disgusted even with the idea, you know. I think that'll be a very interesting one because I think a lot of people talk a big game about wanting the responsibility. Yeah. But actually just want yeah. Dr. Sam to, to do it for them. Exactly. A lot of people will shout, to do it for them. Yeah, I would like that until you give it to them and then they go, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> this comes with responsibility. Yeah, you know, yeah. If I put anything, information into this, it is my information, I understand that, you know, but now I have to be truthful. Yeah. I can't tell the doctor now a lie anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps I'm not just lying to myself, but that's up to that, to that person. Um, uh, the ethics that's involved in this topic. It's huge. Yeah. I have one university working only on that, looking at the ethics of how do people perceive it. And here we have different cultures, right? Like in the West, we've been very open, and that's why we see outcry about the use of information in public, etc. But in the Asian cultures, it's quite common yeah. for, the, uh, for the governments to make decisions on your behalf, and nobody would cry, right? So... We need to look at the ethical impact of the different countries and cultures using an, an application like this. And then 
why would people engage with their own record? And will they upkeep it? And will they keep on using it? Yeah. Right. So I suppose it, it's like your online banking. Maybe you go on it once a month, sometimes two. But if you're very busy on your banking, you might be on it every day. I suppose we need to understand how people would engage with that. You know, how would they regularly actually take a note? You know what? I had a pain in my right side. I write it down. Suddenly, if you look back at that, I had that pain four times over the last six months. I better go and see the doc. Yeah. I didn't realize it was actually four times. Now, that is where we believe real value will come from. If people start self-reporting, that they will be more mindful yeah. of their body. And we had so many podcasts about Preventative this. medicine. Preventative medicine. Yeah. Exactly. Being mindful yeah. of your body and to take notice of your body is telling you or trying to tell you. So that is a very important part. And could the system potentially help with that process by recognizing that you've had this right Absolutely. side pain for the last X amount of year or X amount of months, whatever like that, and it could prompt you? Exactly. Look, Dan, you've yeah. been having this pain. It's time to get checked out. Simple. For instance, if I put mm. in, if you put in uh, a record that you have now um, irregular bowel uh, issues, maybe a bit of constipation, and then also you enter into your log that you had a pain in your right side. And um, two months later, you have another pain, exactly the same place, more or less. Suddenly, you might get a prompt to say, you're over 50. You you're, you didn't go for a colonoscopy yet, yeah. right? It's indicated for your age group, and you can even access the publication or the health information for government on prompting you to go for a colonoscopy and you've reported constipation and you've reported this particular pain every time you are advised to contact your doctor to go for a colonoscopy. Okay, yeah. Imagine the power yeah. of, of what you can create by starting to interact with the machine learning yeah. and proper AI. I think, unfortunately, there's such a negativity about AI, but if we really start to apply it the way it is designed and so many publications are out there discussing the topic of artificial intelligence in medicine and what difference it can make to prevent cancer, blood diseases, prevent diabetes to develop, metabolic disease. By the way, the biggest pandemic in the world is not COVID. Obesity. It's obesity and a metabolic disease. Yeah. Diabetes. Yeah. We have much bigger pandemics to manage. Yeah. And this is the tool. Yeah. So this clearly want to just want to say this. This system was not designed for a COVID system or reactive for COVID system. No. This has in mind to have a complete and comprehensive electronic health record keeping system, right? For the individual. Wow. Managed by the individual for the individual. Right. We are just purely on the sideline here trying to design the technology yeah, yeah. that. Well, you're, <laughs> I wouldn't say you're on the sideline now. It looks like you're a square in the middle of it, but a bit facilitators, I would yeah, say. Exactly. Uh, mediums exactly. for this. this exactly. Yeah, and like, yeah. I think it's an inevitability that we're going mm. this direction yeah. as a, a global community. Yeah, absolutely. But it's going to take someone, and yeah. hopefully this is the start yeah. now with yeah. this, these, these yeah. incredible studies, yeah. Yeah. to take the reins, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah, you mentioned that, uh, which is an excellent point, the use of artificial intelligence. And it is something which a lot of people seem now to have a bit of fear around. But I don't think people realize just how much artificial mm. intelligence shapes almost every single thing we do every day. Yeah. Currently, at the moment, yeah. everything we do is run almost now by artificial yeah. intelligence from your phone yeah. to your banking to yeah. your shopping to your... Well, most things now have some element of artificial learning. Um, but this is just one aspect of something you touched on earlier, which you might give us a bit of a bit of a lesson on. Um, this yeah. f- fourth IR, fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. And most people probably don't even realize there were four industrial revolutions. But yeah. essentially, this new batch of technologies yeah. that contribute to the way we live our lives. So maybe you might give us a little bit of information on what that is and how that affects the yeah. studies and, and, and the plans going forward. Yeah, And I hope um, people listening to this, Dan, would be reassured uh, by this discussion rather than creating anxiety about the topic of artificial intelligence, which is just one of the four IR elements. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll reflect a bit on the history as well, which, which, which you asked me about there. But if we look at the current situation and we look at the phrase fourth industrial revolution, it was actually f- first introduced by a team of scientists developing a high-tech strategy for the German government. That's actually where this originated for, from around 2009 uh, and uh, around that. Klaus Schwab was the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, and he introduced the phrase to a wider audience in 2015 in an article which was published by Foreign Affairs. And it was called Mastering the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And it was also the theme for the 2016 World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos uh, clusters in Switzerland. Now, I want you to note and I want the listeners to note that this was already discussed, put out as a topic for the World Economic Forum in 2016. And the whole concept was well established already in between 2010 to 2015, right? And following that uh, meeting in in, in Switzerland, in in October 2016, the forum announced the opening of its Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in San Francisco. So there's actually a formal structure to this topic of 4IR, right? So... The 4-hour IR marked by breakthroughs in emerging technologies in fields as robotics. So the elements that really you would find as typical 4-IR technologies are basically robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, nanotechnology, quantum computing, biotechnology, the Internet of Things, the industrial Internet of Things, decentralized consensus, fifth-generation wireless technologies, 3D printing. So guess what? We're all using this already. You in your daily life, from your fridge, taking the order, right down to eventually now also keeping your electronic health record by actually embracing this. Now, we were very lucky when we had the design. We could start right from scratch, like in a piece of white paper. Okay, here we sit around the table, and now we start a design, right? So we had the luxury of not having to depend on any existing system yeah. that we could take and say, okay, now, what in the 4IR 
solutions can we actually implement in this? So we could use six of these. Wow. So including artificial intelligence, robotics, we could do the internet of things, we could do quantum techno uh, technology, computing, we can do nanotechnology even. So the industrial internet uh, things uh, of things and um, the fifth generation wireless technologies are part of this solution wow. of the development. So we looked at the technology out there and said, okay, how do we implement this now? We had luckily um, the medical experience on that side, the medical informatics side of it, and we had access to a huge amount of knowledge out there and incredible contributions from colleagues from all over the world to start designing the ultimate system, which I'm not saying it is the ultimate system, but we are trying to achieve. But it's embracing what's it's available, what exactly. the modern tools you have available, as opposed to opposing right. those modern yeah. tools through yeah. fear yeah. or yeah. lack yeah. of understanding. And we realize that it, it is a disruptive design, and it is in stark contrast with what the current model is, where the hospital, the doctor, the state owns all your health data. We're fully aware of that. But even with that in mind, we are able to embrace that opportunity to work with the state, with the other third parties to share. But the only difference, you will now control what they get and yeah. what they have or keep, right? So the Great Reset proposal by the World uh, uh, Economic Forum, the fourth industrial revolution is included as a strategic intelligence in the solution to rebuild economies of the post-COVID-19. Uh, uh, so we even know that this 4IR is implemented in Ireland in our government structure and plans to get us out of the, out of the pandemic and to economically revive. We know that's in the EU, high on the agenda. As a matter of fact, in the EU, um, they have built it into the Horizon 2020 um, uh, um, research program. That is for IR. Yeah. That's what it's about. If you wonder what is Horizon 2020, a lot of this is about exactly for IR. So where did they come from? Where did this whole thing evolve from? It's not just from thumbsuck, you know. What it actually started off was with the first uh, industrial revolution, right? So the first industrial revolution, when people changed from doing things with their hands and creating cloth and working with their hands, building and creating everything that created was done by the hands. And that was transferred in creating machines that starting to weave and started to, to create new things. And the, the, the discovery of the steam power and water power hugely contributed for the first industrial revolution to take place. And it really started in Europe in 7060 more or less, and it went on for until 1820 to 1840 uh, uh, in Europe and the United States mainly, right? And the effects was mainly on the textile uh, industry and manufacturing. And suddenly we had clothing and you could clothe people and they would like different designs. And, oh, what about that color? You know, so it actually driven that. And it was also driven into other industries like iron production and, and iron manufacturing. 
that brought on new agricultural machines and mining. Now you suddenly don't have to have a spade to mine. Suddenly you have bigger machines that's more powerful that can dig, dig deeper and wider and, and more efficiently using less manpower. Um, but it also empowered the middle class to start to rise because suddenly people could work in yeah. these factories, etc. So the first industrial revolution was a very important foundation stone for what we have today as the fourth industrial revolution. So the second uh, industrial revolution, right, was is actually known as the technological technological uh, revolution. It is the period between 1871 and 1914, and it actually resulted from installations of extensive railroads and telegraph networks. And because of that, people could transfer quicker, and they could transfer their ideas quicker. Right? They could converse. It's the early internet. The early internet, exactly, yeah. on the telephone, exactly that. Right? And also with the increasing electrification, um, new inventions could be made that enabled factories to produce more and higher volumes. And modern um, production lines were for the first time seen uh, that wasn't seen before. It is a period of great economic growth and there was an increase in productivity, but also it caused a lot of unemployment because the machines took over yeah. and hence the war, war of the worlds yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> theme of machine statement Terminator. So guess at what? They also have the conspiracy theories even in 1914 they had yeah. it. So they could see these things happening and people resist change as a general rule. Well, that started basically then the industrial revolution of the third kind, right? And that is the also known as the digital revolution. And this occurred only in the late 20th century, right? And of the ending of the two world wars. And this, the wars actually created a lot of knowledge, a lot of building, a lot of innovation, creating new weapons and ideas, etc. And that generated a huge amount of... And then it slowed down after the world wars and resulted in a lot of unemployment again. But when the digital um, revolution started, it actually revolutionized the way people think and do things. And the technologies started to evolve and more people were employed in those technologies, right? And the next significant development in the third industrial revolution was actually in the communication technologies. The mobile phone, how we text, how yeah. we could share messages, how we actually advance telephone and mobile onto mobile. But also very importantly, the first supercomputers were established and built. And with the extensive use of these big computer and big computer programming um, and communication technologies that sat on top of that, we suddenly see um, that we have much more power to the people. Yeah. People start to benefit from it, and they have increased and improved their health qual quality of life. Yeah. Right. So it added value for them. Right. So what is the fourth uh, industrial revolution then? It's an extension of what already happened in the third industrial revolution, of course. Right. 
And the interesting history about how the fourth industrial revolution came about actually started with the German industry 4.0 strategy. And uh, this originated in 2011 from a project in the high-tech strategy of the German government, which promotes the computerization of manufacturing. This is where it all started. How can we do it faster, bigger, better, more effectively, and more cost-effectively? Yeah. Right. So the term Industry 4 was publicly uh, introduced in the same year at the Hanover Fair. Uh, uh, sorry, at the Hanover Fair. And the famous German professor Wolfgang Walster is sometimes called the inventor of Industry 4.0. And in October 2012, the Working Group on Industry 4 presented a set of industry implementations, recommendations to the German federal government. And what they've basically done is to say, this is how we see the German economy can accelerate, right? And was tested in the field, in industry, right? This working group was headed by none other than Siegfried Dias of Robert Bosch Company and Henning Kagerman, the German Academy of Science and Engineering. And what happened is that what they designed and developed and put into industry actually started to become the gold standard for other industries across the globe. And we just started to follow that example, which was already in place in Germany and was field tested and proved to be solid and valuable. And that's where all these different technologies like the Internet of Things, um, robotics, blockchain technologies, all of that is evolving actually from this original point. Okay, okay. It's actually very interesting to listen to that that history there because it's very evident that we're in a very similar place now mm. to what spurred all of these changes, whether it was a world war or a need for something. We've just had a global pandemic yeah. um, and we're going through, yeah. uh, uh, I suppose over the last 10 years, uh, a real data Mm. growth something yeah. major is changing with the way we live our lives so it's if you follow the the, the progression of all these different revolutions and changes they're driven yeah. by a need they're yeah. driven by advances in technology yeah. they're driven by people wanting better quality of mm. life or more effect so that kind of lends to more confidence in something like yeah. artificial intelligence yeah. it's a natural progression of how things have gone yeah and always, it seems, in every one of these cases, people freak out at the start yeah. because it's changing. As you said, people yeah. are resistance to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're going through that at the moment where people, maybe not so much the younger generation, but most people 30, 40, 50 who grew up with a certain way, this is very different. Artificial intelligence and cryptocurrency and blockchain and e-commerce and digital this and digital that and my mom doesn't like to use her phone and all this kind of stuff. Mm. It's That's normal, though, when you look at the progression from one to Correct. four. and. It's, it's, it's just the way thing. That's why I say it's an inevitability, really. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is a part of the evolving modern man, yeah. Dan. It, and people should embrace it. And, of course, we have very good examples where it's abused. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I do agree, and I put my hand up that that is happening. But in general, if you look at the bigger picture here and, and you see where this is moving... Um, imagine now taking somebody's mobile phone away from you, yeah, yeah. you know, or, or take away uh, being able to book your online flight. You know, 
it would be ludicrous. Yeah. Right. Now, that is exactly what's going to happen here. I believe that once we have given access for people to manage their electronic health records, and I don't want to preempt the study outcome here, but what I do believe is that people are ready for that. Yeah. And I believe that people are ready to embrace the technologies that's available to us to do exactly that. Right. Well, for anyone who doesn't think that we're already there, because we're already there. We already I heard some. I, I used to think this a lot about our phones in that I noticed myself and most of my peers that my ability for my recall or my ability to tell a story was diminishing because all I ever did when someone asked me was I put up my phone and I showed them something mm. or my ability to think of an answer to a question. I just Google it. Mm. So. I think it was Elon Musk actually mentioned this in a conversation he was mm. having where he's, they were talking about um, what's the cyber or Neuralink yeah. and people were like, you're crazy trying to link your brain with a computer. He's like, well, like it, we already do it. Reach into your pocket. Your memory bank is yeah. pretty much in your pocket now because all your photographs and your videos and when someone asks you, show me this, you don't recall it from your brain. You just go to your digital brain and you recall it. So like we're already there and you just mentioned, take away someone's phone. It's like you cut out a lobe of their brain <laughs> yes. because all of a sudden you can't remember things and you don't know what happened and you don't know your passwords and you can't access your money. And so realistically, we're already inevitably Absolutely. intertwined very from, with, with Very technology. few people uh, memorize all their mobile numbers. I only know one mobile number now. It's my own. And it's only because I have to re-register it every time I put a SIM on the phone. So, That's exactly so we're losing already. that, but we're, we're transitioning exactly. to an electronic yeah, 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 AI yeah. learning system. Exactly. So what I, what I can reflect on there, uh, with credit to uh, colleagues um, from the uh, uh, Old Dominion University in, in the U.S., and the University of North Florida in Jacksonville is a publication that they brought out uh, after the pandemic, uh, or after the panic, during that pandemic. And this was only published there in April of this year um, in the International Journal for Information Management. Right? And they did a very thorough assessment of what went wrong and what can we do better. And I think it's important that we just reflect on that for a moment because it answers your question about well, how does people embrace this? What about this fourth industrial revolution? It is such a, is it a threat or a friend? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And I think what they concluded was very interesting. And we know that the pandemic has caused huge uh, impact on hospital systems, businesses, schools, the economy, etc. We also suddenly saw that telemedicine, which was talked about for many decades, suddenly became a reality. People have to now Zoom consultation their doctor, yeah. right? We saw the telework with, we saw online education become a reality and essential, yeah. right? We saw um, that a lot of apps and stuff were developed on the internet to see to how can they reduce the infection spread. But also what the pandemic has done is has generated um, demand for efforts to use innovative technologies to cope with damage from the COVID-19. So all these apps, everything that you started seeing coming out and track and tracing is in response to a need. Yeah. And that's exactly what people are looking for. They're looking for solutions. Yeah. And having your own electronic health record is just another solution for something that is really critically needed, right? So the pandemic uh, provided a very rare opportunity to study the research and practice of the technology 
including information management and medical informatics, and the effect it has on work practices and how we design and how do we use these technologies. Without the pandemic, I don't think anything would have changed. Yeah, yeah. I think we just carry on like this until it one day hit again. Yeah, you know. But the fact that has happened, people said, "Hang on a minute, uh, why did this happen?" Right? We have better ways, guys. We just need to do it in a more controlled way. All right. Well, isn't it like we discussed with people coming to see you after they've had the heart attack? Exactly. Why wait for the heart attack? Let's let's stop waiting for the heart attack, guys. Let's exactly. not wait till we have a heart attack and go to see Dr. Sam. Let's, yeah. let's change the way we do things to stop us from having a heart attack. That is exactly the same principle that we're dealing here with. But it took a pandemic. But it took a heart attack. It took the heart attack <laughs> yeah. for people to realize <laughs> I have actually no choice here. Yeah, yeah, guys, yeah. I have to change this, you know. So we saw the quite quick transition um, to telehealth taking place in the pandemic. We saw also that the information systems and the technology uh, uh, systems that was out there became really valuable to us and found new application. A WhatsApp group um, transferring specific knowledge, you know, and academics exchanging new knowledge about treatment ways and colleagues talking to each other across the world, making use of the technologies is just a simple example, but it existed. It's exactly what happened, right? And we also know that some people started with virus tracking and all kinds of applications that started uh, to take place. And these things are realities. And it happened because of the pandemic. But also we know that we started to analyze and the need to have big data available to make good decisions were completely absent. The most expensive um, consultancies were paid in this past pandemic. And the question is, did it make a difference? Unlikely. Why? Because it was on best guess, best guesstimation. It was best um, interpretation of current knowledge and did that always create the best guidelines to lock people up or lock them down, uh, when to release? We still don't have that. Yeah. Right. And that is only possible if you have real data. Yeah. And we believe that is possible if you start on a micromanagement, which you mentioned previously. Macro management in this pandemic failed. It horribly failed financially, economically, health-wise, results-wise, Unfortunately, it failed, right? So we have to do it differently, right? So there is currently a shortage of research information, right? So this study that we do in Dublin is purely to try to establish a new way of thinking. And is the way that we're thinking actually the solution or not? How does people feel about that? You know, how do they interact with the opportunity? So those are the things um, uh, that we that we find cause to say, to guys, hang on here a moment. What do we know really about the electronic health record? We have it on paper. We have it in a lot of publications. But let's put it into practice and let's learn from that. So it affected the design. So, for instance, we had to be very careful how you raise the question. Right. How do you highlight 
certain questions to be answered and people getting anxious say, oh my goodness, am I now COVID positive oh, yeah. because I've ticked three boxes yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there's a lot of things that we need to learn still and how to approach this. But what we do know is that monitoring the client on a daily basis might be a game changer in the future. Also, what do you do about your most vulnerable people? How do you protect them? We have to do it differently. Look at the huge amount of elderly people that succumbed yeah. to the virus. So we obviously failed in our preventative measures and what we did and the decisions that was made were not always, it was in the best interest. I fully appreciate that and I'm not accusing and I don't point a finger at all. We, I'm just looking at the big data here. We horribly failed our elderly people and the vulnerable people. We have to look at different um, strategies. How do we um, encompass and make socioeconomic groups of different stance and economic ability? How do we give them the same survivability than somebody in a high economic uh, group? So there's a lot of disparity if you look at the outcome of the pandemic where communities suffer gravely because of their socioeconomic status, yeah. right? And even their color or race. Yeah. So this is much wider than what we just look at, but you have to start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that is the, the point. We start somewhere. We start in Dublin. We start with a basic study, but I trust we will be able to start replicating this very quickly elsewhere in the world where we will give access to communities to have access to their own, own personal um, health record, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to reinforce what you said there, it's not about pointing fingers because this happened and right or wrong, it was managed in the way it was managed. And yeah. there's going to be a lot of, forgive my French, a lot of ass covering in the next couple of months and years that people are going to want to go through. But I think as as a doctor and as a scientist, you, your interest and everyone who's involved in this study, that's not mm -hmm. the interest. We don't care about that. And exactly. as a person, I don't care about pointing fingers. Yeah. What we care about is we have the ability and the technology yeah. to do this better. Yeah. If this happens, when this happens, excuse yeah. me, again, yeah. let's manage it better. Yeah. It's not about what we did. Exactly. It's about what we can do, yeah. I think, yeah. is, is yeah. what I'm getting here. Yeah, and uh, again, the colleagues were here at Wanzhou Lee and uh, Dr. Zhang uh, pointed out very valid points on on how do we how can we do it better? You know, and they in their study made it very clear that we can actually start with three basic elements of how to do it different from a technology point of view and gathering information, right? And we're delighted to say that we have followed basically exactly that pattern of development. And the opportunity that we had is to redesign public health systems, right? Now, I didn't do that. I say I can contribute to that. Okay. Yeah. Right. So in a way, we need to change from a reactive to a proactive system. Now, that's exactly what we're trying to achieve in the study is to illustrate how are we proactive? How did we change the design to actually be proactive and being able to do real-time surveillance of your personal health, right? And how can you interact then with public health or your doctor yeah. when things start to change, right? So that's called a, re a redesigning of the, the actual health system. 
Secondly, we can transform organizations through enhancing crisis-driven agility and reducing crisis-revealed fragility. So we have to work together as communities. On my own and on the person on their own, it's not going to achieve anything. It is engaging state, private institution, private doctor, uh, public health doctor, all, all the levels need to be integrated yeah. eventually to really create real value, right? And then the third and very important point that has been missing up till now is empowering the individual and communities through adapting, coping, and stemming the false information, the, the, um, the anxiety created by information coming in, and to be able to help people to decide when information comes their way that it is backed up by science or proper orientation within the bigger context of, for instance, a pandemic. Yeah. Right. So it is very important that we get it right next time. And this guideline is really giving us a structure to work towards. Brilliant. Brilliant. So that's a fairly comprehensive breakdown of the mm. uh, the development towards this fourth yeah. IR and the world we live in now. But um, you having that knowledge there and obviously having yeah. the, the, the very skilled and knowledgeable team around you, how did you, how did you design... What was the process you used mm. and the concepts you used to design your specific approach to this yeah. problem? Yeah. Well, I think, Dan, first and foremost, yes, we had a formidable team of contributors in in, in harnessing the what is available technologies and especially the four IR technologies that enabled us. And the approach that we had was actually to have a data-centric uh, technology approach in other words, we we um, included machine learning, the deep learning, uh, big data analytics, etc., can be um, applied to get a better understanding of what we are accessing or what is available to us. Then uh, people-centric technologies, and those are the technologies that's uh, important for people when they use their mobile phones, how they interact, use the interface, okay. the design of that, etc. UI, UX kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. We have to. We had to spend a huge amount of time and still spending time of that on to see how can we improve that experience, right? And then the system-centric technologies include the digital contacting tracing apps, which in our case we would not uh, embrace particularly, but... I think let's leave that. The system-centric technologies are including the Internet of Things, blockchain, and the, they are developed based on system concepts to monitor patients and prevent healthy people from contracting coronavirus, for instance. Okay. So it's more the prevention and what can we do to preempt and warn people. And this is going to be the very in interesting a new chapter in medicine where we will be able to start formulating certain algorithms to start detecting for you, for instance, going to get a heart attack 10 years from now. And this fits in very well yeah. with my functional medicine practice, yeah, which I've yeah. now been trying to do for a number of years, trying to convince people that they need to listen to their body and observe and to um, and to embrace the opportunity to change things and manipulate things in their own health 
to avoid the inevitable. Yeah. Now, this is just the technology part of it, right? So I found a huge relevance from what I do in daily practice and also designing the system that eventually will help people to actually predict and prevent and to make them aware of possibilities. And this is where we really hopefully 30, 40, 50 years from now, because I think that's how long it will take, will start to see a huge reduction, for instance, in preventing diabetes. Yeah, chronic, cr- preventable I hope diseases. Exactly. It hope it will be known at the time to say, you know, can you imagine it was a pandemic once? Yeah. Imagine doctors yeah, saying that to yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that is where this is all going to end up. You know, you see how can we make life better and healthier for people and give them quality of life. But at the same time, when they when they engage with the system and with the solution, I hope that they will appreciate and experience this as a life value add. Yeah. This is something like your mobile phone that you will use for life, forever. And you cannot imagine it be without that until it enhances and gets a new upgrade, perhaps. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. And, and how did I ever use that Nokia 3310? Yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that is will go the same way here. You know, it will just get better over time. And the real va- uh, life value add is what's really going to make a difference yeah. in the end. Yeah. Well, just just on that last point you made there, it's it's a beautiful way of looking at it because realistically, we know how to prevent someone getting diabetes by managing their lifestyle. Yeah. All we have here is a scalable, uh, a scalable platform salute uh, issue. Yeah. Because we, I know, when someone comes into your clinic and mm. you look at them and you examine them, you do their bloods and you analyze them, you get a good picture of who they are. Yeah. You can probably now, I'm not making claims here, but you can probably help them avoid many chronic avoidable diseases. Exactly. And um, where they wouldn't, ha- they, they, they might fall into that if they didn't come and see you. Yeah. So all we need to do now is make that available yeah. and systemize that where yeah. the whole world, um, and yeah. that, that goes for pandemics. We know how to prevent a pandemic yeah. if we have good access, early good exactly. access to information. This yeah. just seems like a, a user or an interface issue to me yeah. now that, yeah. that you're working on. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is just a logic step. It's just the next it? step. In the end, it's just a logic step. It's just step. the next step. And I hope people will embrace it as a friendly application of value add to their life and quality of life. Yeah. You know? And we're looking forward to do this study, and I trust that the results that we get from that will uh, will improve and make even our applications better in the future. You yeah. know, and this is going to be not only me. I'm sure there's going to be many other applications that will similarly develop. You know, yeah. and I hope that it will eventually just create a better way of avoiding an absolute train crash yeah. like we've seen over the last year. We just cannot avoid this uh, unless we take action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless we make that change, which we don't like to make. Yeah. Right. It has to be done. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Well, look, a, a very interesting and insightful and exciting conversation. Just for people listening, there is going to be a lot more in terms of media and content for people to follow along and to engage with. We're going to do a video on the... Um, the study itself and how people yeah. can get can get involved in the study. Yeah. Um, so um, we're obviously going to have a lot more discussions about yeah. the ins and the outs and how yeah. the study is progressing and things like that. Yeah. If anybody wants to learn more at this moment right mm. now, where should they go? At the moment, if they go onto the nuacell.com website, yeah. they would find um, some uh, information on the study there. 
and um, they can contact the clinic okay. uh, directly to, to 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 book themselves in for uh, the study. This, the booking would hopefully open in the next two three weeks, and people must just look out for 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 links or contact the clinic. And I I'm pretty sure. And this is something that I want to just make clear that we want this to be representative of all communities. Yeah. So it's not only for people in this area. I would love people to have to come from all over Ireland. And it's not just for cl- clients of your clinic Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And it's an open public study. Okay. So anyone, if you want to bring your mom in or your brother, or let them know and they can book themselves in. They're very welcome. We want this to be a community-wide, uh, to be representative in the, in the study. We need it not to be just from this area. Yeah. We want it to be much wider. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Dr. Sam, Good. thank you as always for your time and uh, looking forward yeah, to the next much one. Much appreciate this. Thank you very much. Chat you thank you. If you'd like to learn more about anything discussed in this podcast or if you'd like to get involved with the research project, please get in touch with Dr. Sam's team on reception at newacell.com. Thank you for listening.